Hello, I'm John J. Thompson. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that for a long time, my answer to questions like, who's your favorite band these days, or when was the last time you heard new music that excited you, or even, hey John, is thoughtful, interesting, imaginative rock music dead? My answer has revolved around three bands, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, who have taken tribal, enigmatic, and even psychedelic hard rock to incredible places, while Dawes draws a straighter but ever so artful line between soulful 60s and 70s singer-songwriter rock and the sensibilities of today's modern rock and Americana, but right there in the mix is a band that has been blowing my mind since I first heard them, Portland's Blitz and Trapper. Their airtight blend of roots music, dark folk, psychedelia, and progressive rock is just sublime. Now my fur has turned to skin, and I've been quickly ushered in to a world that I confess I do not know. But I still dream of running careless through the snow, and through the howling winds that blow across the ancient distant flow since i first heard their song fur the ballad of a man wolf blitz and trapper has held me in rapt attention eric early's fascinating lyrics meander through mazes of intricately crafted music running the gamut from biographical to metaphysical and all the children sing and all the old men sing it's better to love and lose than to gain a world on a string. Is I let you slip away like water wrapped in my hands. Oh, maybe your love's like rain in the desert to a thirsty man. I've seen the band play many times. Sheer musical brilliance with no need for crazy sets or elaborate artifice. to have Blitz and Trapper's founder, vocalist, chief songwriter, and genie bottle washer, Eric Early, with me on the show today. And following that conversation, we are going to take a little field trip to explore the overlap between psychedelia and some of the deepest questions of the human heart. We'll consider the connection between psychedelic music, impressionist art, and the longing that is too deep for words. It's 
There's a lot more to these long, strange trips than drugs and escapism, and I'll tap into some wisdom from my longtime mentor and a true product of the 60s, David Bunker, for his perspectives. Dave is an artist, a poet, a deep thinker, and truly one of my favorite humans to be around. Brace yourself for a soul-bending trip through the chasms of the heart and mind right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me, and I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. Trapper's most recent album, 2020's Holy Smokes and Future Jokes, landed as one of my top albums of that year, and it has stood up very well since then. Blitz and Trapper should be one of the biggest names in alternative rock, with a sound that is simultaneously classic and innovative, and a lyrical perspective that is hardwired to the soul through the imagination. Somehow, though they have amassed a sizable and passionate fan base, they haven't quite broken out of the underground. pandemic prevented any touring to support Holy Smokes, so this diamond is still buried deep in the rough. During his downtime, Early expanded his work with homeless veterans in the Portland area. What started as a between-tours gig became a passion, though. Early is now a full-time coordinator of caseworkers helping some of society's most vulnerable find the help and housing they need. Well, I dove into that river to see what I could find. And the water rolled on top of me And the stars refused to shine Yeah, I swam until I could not swim Then I swam a little more And the current held me like a lover's arms And then it left me on the shore So I invite you to join me in the virtual True Tunes interview suite for my conversation with Blitz and Trapper's Eric Early who joined me from his home outside of Portland, Oregon. Bye. 
thank you so much for being on the True Tunes podcast today, man. It is an honor to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure thing. And what a fascinating, uh, I don't know, coincidence, if that's the right word, but to have a record like Holy Smokes come out right on the verge of a pandemic, uh, it was a a pretty powerful soundtrack for me. Um, Tell me about the the nature of Blitz and Trapper first, for for folks who might be new to you, or even folks who are fans of the music but might not understand your role in the creation of it. What you do most of the writing and a lot of the instrumentation and stuff yourself, and then you have a band that plays in other contexts, right? Yeah. So I write all the songs and arrange them, and yeah, I kind of workshop the music and and then um, yeah, over the years I've had a band that we play we play them live. And, and the guys have played on the records quite a bit, and I've done a lot of the overdubs myself. Lately, yeah, I've been hiring musicians to come in and play on, especially on the last record, I had a lot of different friends come in and play different instruments on it. You and the core band members go back to, is it high school? I mean, you, you've been doing this for 25, 26 years in one form or another, right? Yeah, I mean, we all definitely have known each other for many, many years, yeah. A lot, most of us since high school, I guess, yeah. Marty, I've known him since since college. That's something else when you keep those kinds of relationships going that long in and of itself. Yeah. And then musically, the band has evolved. There's definitely this DNA that stays constant, this kind of blend of folk elements with prog rock elements and you know almost psychedelic uh i know that that gets that word gets thrown around around a lot with you guys Um, how does that how does that sit with you for one thing the term the psychedelic reference do you feel that in your stuff yeah i definitely do and it's there and i think there's always been sort of a a core of um i would just call it like sort of eccentricity to the (laughs) instrumentation and the music um right and certain records have been less eccentric than others but um yeah there's always been this sort of psychological psychedelic element to it what do you think that means when we say something has got psychedelic elements to it i don't know it probably means different things to different people i think for some it just means more experimental doesn't really color in the lines necessarily i think for others too it just depends on your experiences i mean i had a pretty primal fundamental experience with psychedelic mushrooms when i was a teenager that i've often thought has insert it i often thought in certain ways it has shaped my development psychologically and i would say marty has had the same experience so for my for me i think it's probably informed actual psychedelics have probably informed the music to an extent but yeah I, it's it's definitely become a very general term well, the sheriff let me go with a knife and a song So I took the first train up to Oregon And I killed the first man that I came upon Cause the devil works quick, you know it don't take long Then I went to the river for to take a swim You know that black river water is as black as sin And I washed myself clean as a newborn babe And I picked up a rock for to sharpen my blade Oh, when, oh, when Will the spirit come across? Is there something that you are there intentions beyond commercial success that you're like trying to accomplish as an artist stuff you're trying to put out into the world or ways you're hoping to impact people 
I don't know, man. I, a lot of my work has just been very personal in terms of like why it's made. Like a lot of it, I, it feels to me like a lot of the music I've made over the years has been therapeutic in nature. Like me grappling with things or just, it's also been a way for me to encode like a lot of thoughts and feelings and traumas from the past in music because I was not able to talk about them necessarily. Um, so in a lot of ways, the music is almost like my, has been acted almost like a journal or something, but it's a very coded journal. And in that way, it, it retains its relevance to people like me who are not in your head and not experiencing the world as you are, but the music's meaning a lot to me as I sort my thoughts and feelings out about what's going on. I see a similarity between psychedelic or experimental music and impressionist painting and art. Like, you know, that, that there's, it's not random. It's not just, it's, it's really reflecting the impressions of the artist, but in a way that's supposed to establish, or at least can potentially establish some connection with a, a viewer. Do you see those kind of parallels happening? Have you heard that from, from listeners? Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of popular music has, it's evolved from an, a more impressionist a sort of like rough at the edges like rock and roll aesthetic that was invented in the 40s and 50s really and i think that popular music having evolved from that has always maintained elements of this impressionist idea because it's not it doesn't have to be highly technical you know it can be a guy just like banging away on a guitar following his feelings you know yeah i definitely agree and i think with psychedelic music and folk music I think that they always have this element of impressionism, you know? And a lot of the storytelling that goes on in folk music and in my music is more of an impressionist, impressionistic uh, kind of storytelling. We're gonna step away from my conversation with Eric Early for a couple of minutes. We'll be back soon though, so don't go anywhere. Hey there, this is Jimmy A. Big. I'm here to tell you about something I'm involved in and so excited about that I want to share it with the rest of you. The idea of helping kids in need has long been a passion of mine and Vision Trust has come forward with an opportunity that I can be actively involved in creating and generating both excitement and support for those kids out there. I can remember many occasions with my years with Rich Mullins where we were able to raise funds for building a school in Colombia all the way to trips to Ecuador with Michael W. Smith to visit not only his sponsored children but Randy Stonehill sponsored kids. My wife and I have been child sponsors since before we were married. I can tell you that for more than 43 years. This has been one of the main things in our lives. So one of the ways that I think I can help is by offering a print free of charge to anybody that wants to sponsor a kid. I think that's an amazing opportunity to join the freight train headed for goodness. So get on board, let's get this thing rolling. Thank you to Vision Trust. Thank you for having the vision to sign up a blind man. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. 
I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. And now back to my conversation with Blitz and Trapper's Eric Early. I'm weary of this losing, but what choice is there in choosing if you find yourself a stranger in a stranger place with your beat up shoes and an old suitcase and a wristwatch that don't ever seem to tell the time. But there's a warm and a gentle feeling. It ain't never worth concealing what you see And the rains inside my brains Keeps the memories contained But I miss you like the wind misses the trees Cause I'm a stranger in a strange land Guess I left the world behind But my love is like galaxy seems slow but it sure does shine yeah and when i'm gone you'll know me by the friends i leave behind Do you have a particular approach to songwriting or is it just completely instinctive at this point? I think it's always been pretty just instinctive, just kind of following my own thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've always been influenced, obviously, by what I'm listening to at the time, sometimes more than at other times. But I think when I'm writing what I feel is my best material is when I'm kind of writing that line where I'm where I've listened to a bunch of music, taken it in, and now I'm kind of just sitting on my own, not listening to anything except what's going on in my own head. And then it's just sort of like creating things out of that whole sea of sounds, you know? (laughs) Do you recall as a young person an artist or a record or a concert that pushed you over the edge from being a fan of stuff to saying no i'm going to actually make this this is going to be my path not really because i grew up playing from a very young age like five years old so i always played music and i was always kind of like learning whatever i could hear on the radio or on my dad's records or whatever i mean i guess as a kid i just grew up playing music and it wasn't any kind of there was no plan like oh i'm going to be a professional or something you know right and even when i was older in my 20s and had a band i don't think i really thought of it that way um 
Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, I just sort of always wrote songs as a kid just for fun. Just as, like I said, and I think that's why it's always been like a way to journals because I started doing it as a kid just as a way to get my thoughts out and to experiment with this instrument, these instruments, and experiment with language, you know? And I think, Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, books, because I read a lot of books as a kid, I think books were also another way, another thing that informed a lot of the music and has continued to do so. Um, but yeah, I, there was never like a moment that I can think where I'm like, oh, I want to play on stages and do this or that. great service as the producer of Liz Vice's album There's a Light that we had her on the show oh, yeah. a while back um, oh my gosh what a what a fantastic record and how did that come together uh, how did you get connected with her and what was your concept working with another artist as a producer as opposed to being the artist um, so I knew Liz because we were going to this little church called Door of Hope here in Portland together for a while and she would uh, you know sing on Sundays occasionally and I would play the piano and so we just kind of became friends and we were part of a, a pretty big group of friends and and then um, Josh White the pastor there he'd written a bunch of songs just on an acoustic guitar and we kind of just had this idea like to sort of mold these very kind of simple songs into like a gospel record for Liz and um, yeah she was down and we practiced the songs and we kind of put this band together and then I led the rehearsals and we kind of just like put it all together. But initially the songs weren't gospel songs necessarily. They were just these three or four chord songs that Josh had kind of just written and he demoed and they had, <laughs> if you listen to the demos that he did, they're nothing like what they ended up. Right. Like we just I would imagine. I know Josh's music. Yeah. totally changed and molded them and like the band really just like, we had this vision for what we wanted to do. But that was a really fun project. It's one of the, It's one of those projects I'm most proud of that I've recorded in my life. Foolishness drifts the soul of its light And we foolishly slipped cause we were all blind But into the dark you brought in the light But light without sight is perpetual night A wounded healer and then were you involved with the followers, the, the kind of folky gospel thing? I think I saw a picture um, at one point that you were in. Yeah, <laughs> so I believe it was the second record, Wounded Healer, the one with the lion on it. That was the first record that I produced, really, and played a lot, most of the stuff, and kind of arranged with Josh. Yeah, and that's a good, and Liz sings on that, too. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of like where we started working on this collaboration that ultimately right. was turned into Liz's record the following year. My conversation with Eric Early continues right after this. Hey there. 
I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So, from auditoriums to small groups, there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. And hopefully, I'll be seeing you out there in person. Okay, we're back with more of my chat with Eric Early. talk about this uh, latest record holy smokes future jokes in my opinion it's right there with the best stuff you've done uh over 20 plus years and you wrote all of this stuff before covid and before everything right yeah it was all written and recorded in the spring of 2019 yeah i wrote it in the spring of 2019 oh man no 2018 sorry wow i'm trying to remember now because it came out in the fall of 2020 yeah, so it was 2019 that I made the record, yeah. So tell me about kind of how the concept came together and when you realized, okay, this is an album. This is this is where I'm going with this. Um, yeah, I, I just randomly found a copy of Lincoln and the Bardo and read it and was just curious. I loved the book, but I was I was curious about what what he was talking about. And so I started reading the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which, you know, has always been popularized as this sort of like psychedelic Eastern text or whatever. I don't know. Right. But and that's not even its proper name. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is not even right. its name. And as I got to know it, I was like, oh, this is actually like a very like well thought out tradition of coping with death. 
and the afterlife and, and thoughts of, of non-existence. And so, uh, yeah, I just got really deep into it um, and into this idea of the intermediate space as a way to look at life. Because the idea that, and in Lincoln and the Bardo, this is kind of the, the crux of the book, is that if you have attachments on earth that are ultimately idolatrous, when you die, you get stuck in this middle place because you can't move on. You can't, you're not even aware really that you can move on to this place of ultimately enlightenment or rebirth, right? So right. the Bardo is just this place where you get stuck. And I don't know, I just, it really resonated me with, with me um, in terms of the way we live our lives in this country and just the whole idea of, of detachment, you know, detaching from all these things that ultimately drag us down and have really no meaning. It was something that I could explore. And I also really liked, like the detailed aspect of the book um, is just really beautiful, um, especially the chapter 11 where it goes into the actual journey into the Bardot and the, the deities, the two types of deities. The job of both types of deity, the good and the evil, is to talk you into leaving the Bardot, to moving on, to detaching from these things that don't matter anyways. And the other thing that struck me was that these deities, they actually reside in different parts of your body. So they're not like demons or something that exist outside of you. They're actually part of you. And that really resonated with reading I've done about human psychology, how we're all sort of, our minds are really a conglomeration of different persons that all kind of coexist and meld together uh, on a spectrum. And so, I don't know, it just made a lot of sense to me. I was like, man, th this is, this stuff makes so much sense. Um, and so, I don't know, I just started writing songs and with a lot of those ideas in mind. It's interesting to me that, um you know, if someone takes it literally, if they, if they think this is a narrative novel or, or a historical book or something like that, right. they're going to miss a uh, Carl Jung read it. You know, he recognized its psychological application that, you know, that back whenever that was written, there were people struggling to understand the psyche, you know, that mm -hmm. understand the things that were tripping us up and the things that could set us free. And it strikes me as having a lot of similarities with other ancient texts that seek to reveal some important truths, but if we take them too literally, we actually miss the truth that they're trying to reveal to us. Sure. I mean, I think that's the truth with any text of any kind. Yeah. Is that right. li taking them literally is really just a matter of context, what culture you live in and when you live in it. And so, yeah, you, you can definitely miss the things that you can learn from texts by doing that. been doing a lot of work 
for years with uh, people struggling with homelessness and the effects of homelessness, the causes of homelessness, and not just in an oblique kind of, I give some money to a cause, but you're actually a caseworker and you're managing caseworkers that are dealing with people stuck in that kind of bardo. How did that speak into and give context to the rise of these songs and this interest in uh, exploring this kind of subject? I mean, it may have been the real start because I I started working night shift at a shelter in late 2018. And I worked at a winter shelter 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. for six months. And then after the shelter shut for the spring and summer, I wrote the record. And so mm. it was. Re- it really literally came right after having started doing that work. And then after I made the record, um, I did one more tour with the band over in Europe. And then I just started working at, a, at another shelter that was a 24-7 with the same nonprofit um, and just started doing that. And then COVID hit. And I was like, oh, I guess, I guess this is my job now, you know, because mm. there was no more touring. Right. So it was kind of interesting. And I think that, that the shelter work initially was such a steep learning curve. I mean, like I'd been on the streets and stuff, but at a totally different time and for totally different reasons often. Um, And the people I was working with were in this really distinct, really severe drug culture that has taken over. And by drugs, I mean meth and heroin. So, and those are two drugs I've never done. I've had very close friends who were junkies. and, And so I have a lot of experience in that way, but the initial six months of shelter work was just sort of being submerged in this reality where like guys were smoking meth in the bathroom and you'd have to chase them out. And like, you got to know the smell of it. You got to understand when guys were on one or when they were sober or whatever. I started to figure out the tells and started to figure out like where this person came from, why they started using, you know, started to figure out like, Oh, so they live in camps during the summer here and there. Yeah, it, it's just a whole a whole world that I sort of started to get privy to. Right. And I think for me, it was kind of almost mind-blowing just in terms of my own journey and just in terms of like learning about human nature in general. Obviously, when the band was starting out, there was a lot of press and buzz about you having experienced homelessness yourself. But, but you're saying that when you compared what you were doing, sort of intentionally just getting out of the system to what these people are experiencing... It sounds like you experience you, you hit a whole new dimension of empathy and understanding that instead of sending you running, you, you're like, okay, this is my job. This is what I'm, I'm going to help. Yeah, I think it's something, I think I realized that it was something I was suited to in certain ways, um, just in terms of my, I, I mean, I really think in terms of my attachment style. So, like, I, I think... In a lot of ways, it's been really bad for my life. The fact that I, I have a very detached nature and a very avoidant attachment style. But in terms of working with the homeless, it's it's actually helped me because I'm, I'm really good at sort of, like I, I've been working in it for over three years and I, I still have yet to feel any real burnout. Like I'm, I'm really good at leaving things and detaching from them and sort of being able to put them in their place when I'm not working. Mm-hmm. And I think that, if you're not good at that, you burn out. I mean, I don't think I know. I, I've seen it many times. You, you can burn out and, and your judgment starts to get clouded um, and you get triggered and all these things. Um, so my temperament, um, for various reasons, I think I, I just took to the work really well. Hazy morning, 
other places as this album uh, being a exploration of a gateway to cosmic humility. Tell me what you mean by cosmic humility. By cosmic humility, I mean like, and this is something that I've I've always found problematic with Christianity and all religions. Um, not necessarily the gospel, but Christianity as sort of a big right. monumental thing is that humans. We view ourselves as being the center of the universe. This we're the we're the most important mammal on the planet, and I just don't I don't think that that's the case. I think that humans have been here for just a blink of an eye. You know, in our current state, we've been here what three hundred thousand years. We've been here in, for the blink of an eye, and to think that we are somehow <laughs> more important than the trees, more important than all of the other life in some grand cosmic way, I think is ex an extreme form of arrogance and pride. And I think that that view, which ultimately evolutionarily was a way to survive right. and religions have evolved out of that. I think that they have be begun to circle around and become extremely problematic because it is this view that humans are the center of everything that creates so many problems and ultimately is, is going to change the very biology of the planet. And we're seeing it already. And I'm not saying that humans will like somehow go extinct or something. I mean, any organism that has ever lived on Earth has two choices. Either it evolves into something else or it goes extinct. That's just the way it works. And humans are no different. And so reading the Bardo Thadol, it <laughs> their idea of reincarnation, this idea that when you die your energy returns or or it passes on and it doesn't return through one of the eight wombs. It, it passes on into, you know, nirvana or whatever you want to call it. And so the goal of it is extinction. The goal of, the goal of this kind of religious narrative is that all souls migrate away from this attachment to the biological or something right. and ultimately there's no there there's no more there are no more spirits to re to repopulate and so you go extinct and i don't know that that would necessarily be the ultimate goal but like that's the idea i don't know and so for me it, it really sort of opened my eyes to like wait a minute who like who do we really think that we are you know mm -hmm. and and how does that inform how we act towards other life on the planet. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. That was a good oh, yeah, explanation. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And cause I, I think about that stuff a lot. I, I feel like the evangelical obsession with rapture, for instance, this yeah. idea that, you know, everybody that believes the right stuff is going to get sucked up to heaven before everything gets thrown in the fire is pretty similar in some ways to an idea of escaping everything through nirvana. It's still about escape. Right. 
and this idea that maybe the alternative is we evolve, we're reborn. And that seems to be mm-hmm. a lot of what Jesus was saying in the gospel, dying to live, picking up your cross to follow him. Even the idea that the last will be first and the meek will inherit the earth. Those are all things about kind of a death that leads to a rebirth. Right with the goal not to just escape, but to actually do good in this world, to bring, and because it also says everywhere God is love and our job is to love people. You know, right. that, that seems like a very different kind of energy than conquest and domination and, you know, it's all about us. Right. Trying so hard to believe there's more to this life than what you see. Think magically in the nighttime dry way, waiting for the man to break you into a million shattered parts. But every human heart throws a shadow on this wall, on this wall. And that's why I think the gospel and its centralized message of grace, it always resonates with me because, I don't know, it, it, it seems to be the only thing that really makes sense. And in terms of the trauma that I see every day, you know, in my work, in terms of like good and evil, when I really look at at the reasons people are are addicted to drugs, are robbing each other, are shooting each other, like when I really look at the reasons these people are so messed up that I'm working with, it always goes back to these traumas from age zero to 10. And ultimately these are traumas that they had absolutely no control over. And I'm no different, not, none of us are any different. And so to me, the idea of grace is a very vibrant, real thing because I'm I'm continually forcing myself to have grace for people who mistreat me, who like I'm trying to help and they are constantly right. fighting against it, you know? Yeah. Um in various ways. Not all the time. But right. I just I'm constantly reminding myself like we're all traumatized. And so I found that in working with folks, the idea of this humility mixed with this like I mean, I didn't know know what you'd call it. It's like ultimate grace. It's like these people who are mistreating you, (laughs) you still try to help them. (laughs) I feel like that's that's the real struggle in my job is is trying to do that. made a post on instagram the other day that just stopped me in my tracks um and the whole thing was great but you said at the end of it i encourage you all to give of your resources and energy to whatever nonprofit or charity that you feel is helping to restore the balance because no matter where you are and this is the part i'm going to put on a tattoo or something everybody's life is a spiritual journey through trauma and into joy Man, that's the kind of grit that when you're engaged in serving others, the least of these, you know, when Jesus even said, wherever you go where the least are, the broken, the hurting, the imprisoned, that's where you find me. That last bit into joy is so stinking hopeful. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it might be too hopeful sometimes for me to think that way. <laughs> well, but yeah, it's, it's all you got really. Well, and it kind of goes to the, even the tone, the emotional tone of this album, um, 
this is so it's funny it's light it's it pulls you in with that you know the good news is we're all gonna die as dogs would say <laughs> you know it's like i just think that's a really fantastic bit of uh almost like a sleight of hand an artist's flourish at the end to say i'm gonna do something about mortality and death but it's actually really good news yeah <laughs> <laughs> not everybody can pull that off you also said in an interview with uh, eric johnson from fruit bats who i also love yeah. and um, being originally from chicago was uh familiar with them just in the course of this long conversation you drop this little thing that says any experience that humbles you is valuable have you experienced humility and being humble as something that has brought specific values any examples of that or how that's spoken to you as an artist oh yeah i mean in my career i've i've lived through so many times where i was humbled by things there's no specific place where humility somehow raises its head it's more like this long journey towards it I mean, I think that enlightenment itself, when it's spoken of historically, is really just a journey towards humility, towards cosmic humility. Having had big records in the past, and then what I would only call diminishing returns over the years, smaller clubs, not, I'm not as relevant, not as many people listen, that kind of thing is always going to be humbling for any artist, but it's always going to be inevitable. Not always, but for the most part, it will be inevitable. And so I think those different humbling experiences like playing a club and not selling it out and then playing another club and having even fewer people or putting out a record and no one responds to it. You know, those kind of experiences for a musician, I think those are extremely beneficial <laughs> because they move you towards humility. Because ultimately, like as an individual artist or whatever, I don't really like it none of us really matter in like this ultimate sense that we would like us like to think that we matter. You know what I mean? Right. We're just like another piece in a, in a giant tradition of poetry and music, you know, like we're just a little piece of the puzzle, whether you're big or small, you're all just a piece of this puzzle. And so I think that those experiences of, of the arc of a career are, if you can get through them and learn from them and realize who you are and your place, then they can be extremely valuable. And for me, I think that those experiences have been kind of the thing that have saved me in a way, have moved me towards this path of, of doing therapy and, and trying to understand my own trauma and move through it. And in so doing, be able to have healthier, better relationships with others. Because ultimately that's the goal is to be able to attach and to be honest and to have healthy relationships. I lost my lover in the shadows of this city We were waiting for our ride-sharing rain She kissed me twice, snapped her fingers And suddenly I stood At the edge of every world I'd ever conjured in my mind Oh, the wild goose runs circles round They're wishing well till dawn Howling of 
changes the dust That kind of humility, it seems, also is really a correction towards reality, <laughs> like yeah. because the alternative is a delusion uh, as well. And it's only in the last hundred years that that blip happened, where all of a sudden artists became wildly successful, culturally influential, famous, and then you know the the crash of the music industry and all these things. The technology has kind of democratized that again and brought artists back down to that troubadour level. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a correction to where things are maybe supposed to have always been as opposed to this bubble that happened and needed to pop. Yeah. Um, you've also done a lot of visual work recently. You've been sketching and painting and you've posted a few of those things. Has visual art always been a part of your creative process or is that something new and how does it compare to making music? For it you? was when I was younger, you know, when I was early in playing music and stuff. Yeah. I did a lot of visual art, painting and drawing and all kinds of collaging and, strange stuff and then i kind of stopped when i started you know doing music professionally and touring all the time i'm not sure why really but yeah as my energy has moved away from music my musical career into more of just sort of a day job place um yeah i've, I've moved back towards painting a lot and i studied painting in college for a while in my early 20s um but yeah i've definitely gone more towards that again as, as a way to release energy and to get back into my body. we met at the record store you were playing at grimy's and i asked you a question that seemed to freak you out in the moment and i felt really bad <laughs> about it but but um i just said if i said some names of some really obscure artists i wonder if this means anything to you and i mentioned daniel amos and you looked up at me with big eyes and were like we're not a christian band and i'm like no 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 that's not what i'm getting at i know i don't want to <laughs> peg you as anything but but that's one of my favorite bands. And then you mentioned uh, you mentioned something in passing. You said, well, my you said something about your parents being involved in kind of a Christian hippie scene. Tell me a little bit more if you're willing to, now that you know I'm not trying to put you in a <laughs> Christian rock box. Uh, yeah, I mean, my parents were, they like they became Christians in the 60s as the, the, the Jesus, Jesus movement was era. beginning in LA. And they, we, they, they lived in LA. Oh. And I was actually born there. Yeah, they were part of that scene and did and and they did music my dad played guitars and my mom sang and she had a beautiful voice and they did a lot of that um all around la during that time and so they shared stages with larry norman and, and people like that they remembered seeing randy stonehill's first concert like i think that that scene was was healthy for them for a time but by the time i was conscious in the 80s <laughs> the whole christian evangelical scene had become so dark and i don't even know what to call it well, detached from from its identity, I yeah. think in a lot of ways. The it had become traumatizing. I think for everybody, 
even now I'm in therapy dealing with a lot of the traumas that happened because of Christianity in my youth and a lot of the things that have driven me away from Christianity over the years um, have had more far-reaching impacts than I've ever really been aware. And so I think in a lot of ways, those traumas and impacts because of Christianity have always made their way into my music. Because like I said, my music has always been a way for me to somehow encode and journal my thoughts and feelings and emotions and all these subconscious levels. So I think it's inevitable that that stuff not necessarily the music or the sound, although maybe that too, because I, I do remember listening to Larry Norman as a kid. And, and a lot of that music's so good. Like, I'll even listen to some of it now to sort of like take me back and to remember influences from childhood of that nature. Daniel Amos to me is the group that I hear the most similarly because they were never a part of that evangelical. Yeah, I've listened to them. I, my brother in law had, had all their records, which is probably why I was like, and, and they now I really like their 80s records the most because they're so strange and eccentric. So what is the future hold? I, I hear you, you've, you've posted some tour dates. So is that going to be the, the full band or is that a solo thing? Or who, who is Blitz and Trap? So, yeah, it's going to be a band. It's not going to be the same band. Um, it'll be me and Brian, and then it'll be some other folks, um, friends, that'll be playing. Um, but yeah, it's not going to be the original band because most of the guys have retired or and we've kind of changed the structure of everything. Um, Right. Yeah, so it's definitely going to be a different band to a point. There will be, uh, you've listed some dates that are pretty much just West Coast, that you don't even make it as far east as Nashville, which is heartbreaking. So, Yeah, um, right now Denver is there, the farthest we're going to go. Do you not foresee doing a lot more touring over the in the future for Blitz and Trap? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It's hard to say. Yeah. New songs? Are you, are you still writing? Or are you still I haven't been writing, no. I... Been raising a four-year-old. Wow, that'll change with things. My wife <laughs> and uh, and working full time. And I, yeah, I just haven't been doing music really. I I'll, I'll play occasionally with people here and there or in the studio, but. Um, so Blitz and Trappers kind of walking in the Bardo right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying I guess to decide you're right. if it's time to roll off into the dark or be reborn. <laughs> I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I know that marriage and kids and service, I mean, that's, that's, you're talking bedrock stuff of life and, and it's rock and roll, the struggle. Most people don't understand the struggle that it is. Even a band at your level that was achieving some pretty great stuff, it's still, it's a ton of work for not a lot of returns. So um, you've got people that are counting on you right now, both in your immediate family and, you know, your extended family there in the Portland area. So you're living a, a really powerful example of this process of dying and being reborn. And that, that's an exciting thing to see. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> 
Well, man, thanks for taking time with us today. Really been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks, John. So Thanks, Eric. Okay, while the jukebox warms up, let's take a quick break. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list, where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, Please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening.
There is a long, fascinating connection between psychedelic music and spiritual pursuits, from well-known names to artists so obscure they might not even remember themselves anymore. Bruce and I have been scouring the crates for some excellent examples of sacred psychedelia. With Eric's words and music lingering in our ears, let's head over to the True Tunes jukebox and see what kind of mysteries we might unravel. As a child of the 80s, I didn't really understand psychedelic rock at first. Due to often cartoonish representations in the media, I thought that term simply referred to music that only made sense if you were high. Trippy, meandering guitar solos loaded with special effects and weird lyrical images. I was a fan of what I thought was meaningful, intentional, literal art, and by the time I was a teenager, rock music had become a very produced, commercial, and direct form of entertainment. I thought psychedelic rock was for old hippies. I didn't recognize the debt artists like U2, Peter Gabriel, or later Wilco, Black Rebel, Dawes, and Blitzentrapper owed to this tradition. I also didn't recognize that music's provenance in the heritage of Impressionist art. I had no idea how badly I needed this stuff until I found it. Psychedelic gospel? That might seem like a complete paradox, but I don't think it is at all. It makes perfect sense that young artists coming out of the counterculture of the 60s into a fresh embrace of the gospel would express the contemplative, imaginative, existential aspects of faith through music and art that lent itself to these kinds of tones. 
I decided to reach out to a longtime friend and mentor of mine, David Bunker, for some reflections on how the psychedelic mindset was both formed by and formative upon the Jesus movement and the music scene both within and around it. David was at Woodstock. He is a product of that original era and eventually joined a rock band merging the aesthetics of the counterculture with a radically gospel-oriented faith. We got together, actually at the newly refurbished and reopened Koinonia Coffeehouse on Music Row in Nashville, a place that was once the center of the Jesus music community in Music City. In addition to everything you've done uh, in the industry and what you continue to do with artist care, and you started off as an artist, like you were in a band. Tell me the story about playing here back in the day, and who, who were you then, and what were you doing? Well, you know, I came out of the whole hippie thing, so I think back in the 60s and 70s, everybody was in a band. It was kind of a rite of passage. But when I did come to Christ in my late 20s, we ended up having a band called Shelter, and somebody said, you ought to go to Nashville and talk with this guy, Dan Rains. He works with Lamb and Lion. And uh, didn't get signed. He didn't, he wasn't all that. uh, But we were out on the road, and we played a lot, and we ended up playing with um, Rooftop Records, which was Servant, and uh, they wow, we really like you. Would, you. would you play again with us and again with us? And then they said, we're starting a label with Lloyd Thog Martin, you know, which, which I thought, that's a unique name. Anyway, we ended up getting, I just started a band called Lloyd Thog Martin right now when you said <laughs> there that. You go. I, that's what I'm thinking. Like, people go, what is, is that some kind of weird ancient truth? Anyway, so. so we toured with all of the, you know, the Randy Stonehills, the Larry Normans, the DeGarmo and Keys. I mean, I remember once when we played with DeGarmo and Key, you know, we warmed them up. But after our third applause, you know, standing applause, you know, Eddie's in the side going, no more, <laughs> get off, you know, and I was like, he was right, you know, we were self-indulgent. But played a lot of festivals, but that was my introduction in many ways to this new world of Jesus music. So. Right. And so when you started off by saying you're a hippie, you're talking just your your typical mainstream drug-taking teenage hippie, not what we're thinking of with like the Jesus people type of hippies at that point. No, no, I was go to Woodstock, you yeah. know, and uh, spend a day someplace in my head and then have to <laughs> have somebody help me get home and uh, a lot of bacchanalia, but also a lot of uh, introduction to beauty and, and nature. And I lived in a couple communes and so all of that cliche was right. not cliche to me. Right. And it formed me into uh, both good and bad. The good was that I realized that uh, people need community. Sometimes it's really hard for me to picture a time in which music and musicians were inviting people to think about big things in a different way. Like it's become so corporate and so commercial and stuff like that. Tell me about the counterculture idea in the 60s and what what was being pushed against and what was being sought and how did that Jesus movement experience impact you in a countercultural way? What happened, I think, in the 60s and 70s is that my generation began to question what our parents were asking of us in terms of how much vocation and the corporate world formed our identities. Mm. And that's capitalism. Right. 
And there's capitalism can be redemptive and can be good, and I believe in prosperity, so this isn't my indictment against capitalism. It is, in mo though, looking back, that when I see you as a financial remuneration in my life, and I right. name you accordingly, and I name all my experience as, as how efficacious is it to my bank account, and, and right. so on and so forth, and when I look at every problem, that there's some scientific reason for it, and we can solve it, all of a sudden now my humanity becomes a second, I, I really don't need to be a human because there's always a solution. I can drink it, take it, buy it, whatever, purchase it. Right. There was a fighting against that and there was a lot of, all of a sudden back in the 60s and 70s, we moved out into the country so we realized that while nature was around, people began to say, what are you? I'm a hat maker, <laughs> you know, I'm a shoemaker, I'm a whatever maker. And, and so vocation now became much more localized. And you began to take your, where you were planted in this universe much more as a sacred thing. And I realize now that some of the malaise that people have is that they've bought into some of these, you know, stories and they haven't birthed any real deep fruit. Right. I get it, I feel the same way. So I feel sometimes like I'm going back and I want to say, you know what, I'm grateful that I have a nice home and I'm grateful that I have nice things, but there is a dark shadow side to wanting my life to be about finances. Right. And that, that was, if, if anybody would say what was a big part for you back in the 60s and 70s, it, it changed my view of money and quite frankly now as somebody, I don't even tell people how old I am, because my wife and I have owned the same house since 1983, and we buy secondhand cars, and we've learned to live on almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It allows me to be happy. Right. Because I don't have to hook up to like, okay, then I need to be. And so there are times when I'm like, what's the shadow side of the larger narrative that we're being told? Because there's a shadow side to everyone. Even in, even, even in evangelical culture, you see the shadow culture. So one of the things I wanted to explore is psychedelic music. Sometimes I hear stuff that's called psychedelic and I find it really, really interesting. Other times I feel like it's just kind of long meandering, noodling on a guitar and I don't get it. And I had the impression when I was a kid that psychedelic music meant you had to be on drugs for this to be good. And I made a comment to that effect to somebody who took great offense at it <laughs> and then was like, no, 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 actually we're trying to replicate some thoughtful, mindful, meditative experiences with music that, that don't even require drugs. To me, some of it kind of reminded me of impressionistic painting. Can you tell me about psychedelic rock music, folk music, and what it meant spiritually? What it meant, like, what was the draw to that? I obviously think there was a 
drug-induced element to it, if you will. But there was also, you began to realize that here's a song, but there's ambient things happening. And so it's kind of like, what are you listening to? Psychedelia to me was more, uh, so what else do you hear? What else do you feel? And some people were much more creative with their imagination. They would create, uh, like a lot of times now, we listen to a movie and you're hearing a soundtrack. Well, that's how Moody Blues were to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, and they would do, you know, 20 minute songs, or Pink Floyd would have a guy walking upstairs, you know, <laughs> slamming the door. Right. Now, when you've got some drugs in you, it does tend to heighten that experience a little bit. But regardless, all of a sudden you realize sound has a narrative quality to consciousness. It's saying something, and it doesn't say the same thing to everybody. Right. And so that's how I would describe it. And you did have, in many ways, the 60s and 70s art movements were kind of a response to 20th century Impressionism and Expressionism. If you study German Expressionism, where people very much broke out of literal pictures and stuff to what their impression was of a sunset. There's a good reason for living. There's a good reason for dying too. And the Lord is the only one who can guide you. There's a good reason for thinking, very good reason for crying too. And the Lord is the only one who can console you. Some of us, people like me that have no experience, we hear LSD or mushrooms in the same category as heroin or pain pills or something like that. It, but it, it doesn't sound like that journey was about avoiding pain, right? It wasn't, it wasn't as, definitely wasn't about avoiding pain because quite frankly, you could have experiences on drugs that were very heightened in terms of like, you might have a, an, an experience where you were talking with you know, a relative in your imagination. But I will say that the psychedelic experience that many people had from taking drugs, you can have that without drugs. In other words, that's the thing that I realized. And as a Christian now, I'm a big fan of, of re-enchanting the gospel in my life, of letting my imagination be healed and in, term, in terms of the mind of Christ and so on and so forth. And that Christian community should be the one place where we can, our palates can be very, broadly expressed. Thanks, Dave. I'm saving another clip from this conversation for later in the show. David will share a poem with us during the Soapbox segment, so stay tuned for that. So, 
Maybe psychedelic, or if that term bothers you, impressionist music that fuels and rides along streams of imagination is not only compatible with the gospel, but might be essential to it. How else can we conceive of ideas like community, redemption, or grace without using our imaginations and emotions? It's also interesting that spiritual ideas, and even blatantly gospel ideas, have popped up in mainstream psychedelic rock since it was invented. The Bee Gees quietly released a tune called Every Christian Lion-Hearted Man Will Show You in 1967 that blended pseudo-Gregorian chants with swirling Mellotron parts, lots of reverb, and a vaguely religious lyric. The Electric Prunes, one of the earliest and most influential of the original psychedelic bands, scored a major hit that same year with I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night, but two of their following albums, Release of an Oath and Mass in F Minor, both released in 1968, are loaded with spiritual ideas. Then there's one of the most famous psychedelic rock tunes of all time. I can't quite describe the feeling that washed over me when, in 2003, I visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland and saw, among many other things, a little scrap of yellow notebook paper with the handwritten original lyrics for Jimi Hendrix's landmark song, Purple Haze. I had long sensed a deeper spiritual hunger in that song, but when I saw that the title had originally been Purple Haze, Jesus Saves, I was floored. It's easy, and kind of lazy, to assume that Purple Haze is just a drug song, or if it is, that it is promoting intoxication. In an interview, Hendrix explained that the song was at least partly inspired by a dream he had in which he was walking on the bottom of the ocean, lost. He said that it was only his faith in Jesus that saved him from the Purple Haze that threatened to drown him. Wow. In the song, he mentions a girl who puts a spell on him, so there's something like love involved here, and Kiss the Sky sounds a lot like an act of worship to me. Might the whole song be swirling around the idea that freedom from confusion, toxic relationships, doubt, fear, might only be found in a higher power?
one of the biggest psychedelic songs of the hippie era is the Moody Blues 1970 smash hit, Question. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door? With a thousand million questions about hate and death and war. This is another one that sounded like a straight-up gospel song. I couldn't help but think about that promise from Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus assures that if we seek first his kingdom, we'll see it. If we knock on the door, it will be opened. Vocalist and songwriter Justin Hayward laments a lack of answers as he knocks upon the door before sneaking in a powerful idea. The truth is hard to swallow. That's what the war of love is for. Hayward then goes on to paint a lyrical pastiche of theological ideas from a very Corinthian view of what love might actually be, to the search for life-changing miracles, to roads he must choose, and even a reference to, quote, the land he once knew. Even the song's twist from the frenetic, rational questions about hate and death and war to the slowed-down, swirling, confession of need that comes in the song's bridge sounds eschatological to my ears. I'm looking for someone to change my life. I'm looking for a miracle in my life. And if you could see what it's done to me, to lose the love I knew, could safely lead me to the land that I once knew. To learn as we grow old the secrets of our soul. So, it makes perfect sense that Jesus Freaks, with considerably smaller budgets than the Moody Blues, Hendrix, or the Electric Prunes, would use similar music to accompany their spiritual songs. Garages from California to Chicago to the UK and beyond rattled with righteous psychedelic rock well into the 70s. Espíritu Santo! Espíritu Santo! Yo te pido que te muestres ante nosotros y corrijas las malas tendencias de todos estos descarriados. Horas en blanco, mi juventud Vivo luchando, no he visto la luz Valles sin fondo, río sin fin Negros presagios, no veo la luz Over the last several years, a bunch of obscure, often home-recorded, independent Jesus music records have been rediscovered by collectors and labeled, quote, Jesus Psych or Christian Psych, and have become highly sought-after relics of that bygone era. And understand, the folks driving the value of these rare custom LPs up into the hundreds of dollars are often not Christian music fans at all. They are simply folks who appreciate the music and, as Bruce explained to me recently, found a certain ironic curiosity in these previously unknown groups.
While a lot of what is called Jesus psych sounds more like folk music than psychedelic rock to my ears, Bruce also pointed out to me that in the late 60s and early 70s, there were a number of experimental folk artists who deviated from the standard folk formula, bringing in strange chords, odd instruments, and trippy mystical lyrics that often had pagan themes. This stuff, dubbed freak folk or weird folk, lent itself to spiritual exploration. But later, when magazines like Goldmine and Record Collector found odd indie folk records with Christian themes, they placed them into context with other message music and the freak folk stuff. This opened the music up to collectors way outside of the Christian music world. Come all you thirsty nations, come to the riverside. If your fountains have run dry, then come to be satisfied. Come all you people searching to a love that will never die. Shown to us in a person who through love offered up his life. Who through love offered up his life. In recent years, there have been a couple of prominent vinyl reissues of this sacred psychedelia. Aquarium Drunkard put out an amazing compilation called Jesus People Music Volume 1, The End Is At Hand, which included tracks by several groups even I had never heard of, like Pitch and Spice, Jim Valley, and Frank Starr, alongside a few I had, including Wilson McKinley's Almighty God. record was released for Record Store Day in 2020 and seems to have sold out in one day. Another compilation called Jesus Trip, rare Christian psychedelic and folk nuggets 1967 to 1976, was released digitally in 2021. to these projects on the show notes page, along with some fascinating YouTube rabbit holes, it's really incredible how a genre like this can be discovered, defined, and curated a half century after most of it was recorded. But it's not all that old. The Flaming Lips, one of the most influential psychedelic groups since the 80s, not only covered every Christian lion-hearted man by the Bee Gees, they wrote their own, Shine On Sweet Jesus, in 1990. I hear strains of this kind of music in things like Danielson Family and Sufjan Stevens, and we connected Natalie Bergman's music to this tradition last year. Yeah. 
Gunger has been playing with psychedelic sounds and images since he debuted in 2009. Expressionism, imagination. How could Jesus music not include these ideas and approaches? And honestly, any psychedelic music fan who isn't at least allowing the cosmic, extraterrestrial, mind-blowing ideas that Jesus talked about and lived invade their headphones is just missing out. And if there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that he must know. And he's been there once already, and has died to save their soul. Jukebox is starting to smell a bit funny. I think we better let her cool off a bit. As I pull out my soapbox here to wrap this up, I'm thinking deeply about one of my favorite aspects of music, the way it sparks my imagination and stirs my soul. It seems that the essence of psychedelic experiences, be they through music, substances, or even natural physiological responses to trauma, exertion, extreme hunger, or just dreams, is to achieve a kind of out-of-body experience that is still connected to and dependent upon our senses. We long to see beyond the horizon, to feel emotions more powerfully, to hear the thrum of beauty around us and within us. Something has whispered in our ears that there is more to this journey. These moments of transcendence are not really about escape. These are the experiences that empower us to catch glimpses of the things that are way beyond our limited perspectives. This can lead to increased empathy for those around us and a vital connection to ephemeral things like hope, grace, and love. 
I want to step back into my conversation with David Bunker for a couple more minutes. He shared a poem that really landed with me. What does it take to listen or, or to participate in music or film or art that takes you beyond that left brain analytical uh, narrative thing into something more imaginative, spiritual, emotional, that kind of thing? I have a poem here, The Musical Murmuring of the Beyond. And the poem is, if your ears could hear only the softest whispers, what would those whispers say? Would they be different every night? What province of your deepest affections would they find welcoming and resonance? For there are certain territories of the heart that can only be entered blamelessly with purity of intention. As arrival empty-handed is essential for entry. So leave all your windows open tonight and hearken to the secrets and sighs worthy of only lovely words, words that hold the innocence like a precious gift, not because they're fragile, but worthy of being held as sacred, quietly, with whimsy and wonder. Thanks, Dave. I want to wrap this up with a brief section from C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. The first time I came across it, I was probably about 14, and I remember thinking it belonged somewhere in a Pink Floyd album. Lewis writes, quote, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but this is all a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to these moments in the past, he would have not found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited." End quote. The echo of a tune we have not heard. Wow. I think I'll just leave this right there. I'm stepping off my soapbox now.
That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes page for the list of songs you heard here and a lot more. I have also built a special psychedelic gospel playlist, which you can find on that page or under the True Tunes profile on Spotify. Thanks to Eric Early of Blitz and Trapper for his time and talent. May the road rise to meet you, Eric, in your music, your family, and the amazing work you are doing in your community. I also want to thank David Bunker, not only for his contributions to this conversation, but for nearly 40 years of faithful friendship, mentoring, and brotherly love. If you don't have a bunker in your life, get one. And thanks to my co-producer, co-conspirator, and soul brother, Bruce A. Brown, for helping me nail this jello to the wall. You are the best. Thanks also to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our amazing theme song. Please give us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Find and follow our weekly Spotify mix and sign up on our email list. We've got some amazing stuff in store. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to more closely examine the colorful corners of your soul-soaked imagination. To the artists who help us get there and the friends who help us make sense of it all, have a safe journey further up and further in. Peace.